Welcome to Places, everyone, a conversation about the balance of art and business. I'm Lonnie Firestone. TV and stage actress Kristen C. has loved languages, specifically the sounds of accents, since she was a child, and has developed a talent for creating her character's voices. When Kristen nails a character's voice, she fully inhabits her, or him, as is sometimes the case. On the upcoming HBO adaptation of The Plot Against America, that voice is from Newark, New Jersey. In The Band's Visit, her recent Broadway show, that voice is from Israel. And in Roosevelt's, in which he played President Teddy Roosevelt, that voice is something unique unto itself. Developing the sound of a character is a different process on the set of a TV series than it is on stage. And Kristen says it's not just about getting the region right. It's also about finding those idiosyncrasies of a certain time and place that feel authentic and recognizable. In Kristen's work with The Team, a theater collective she co-founded with director Rachel Chafkin and other drama graduates from NYU, the plays and characters and voices are all built from scratch, resulting in art that is eclectic and genre-stretching. It's altogether different from performing as a recurring character on a TV series like Orange is the New Black or House of Cards, two of Kristen's recent shows, in which her characters have been predefined. Kristen and I talked about landing the voices and styles of characters who are visibly different from her. Different gender, different ethnicity. What are the situations when that feels out of bounds? And what discoveries has she made in her many transformations? This is my interview with Kristen C. Kristen C., nice to have you. Hello, nice to be here. <laughs> um, so I want to talk a lot about voices with you in this conversation. And to start, there's a great clip on the New York Times website that I've watched a <laughs> bunch of times. <laughs> and I recommend people watch um, from a few years ago where you and actress Libby King perform a segment of the play Roosevelt. Am I saying the title mm -hmm. correctly? in which you are Teddy Roosevelt and she is Elvis Presley. Um, it is awesome. <laughs> and uh, both of your voices are so heightened and wonderful. And you're channeling these two men. And it occurred to me when I was watching it over a couple of times that in a number of roles that I know you from, you sound distinctly different. Like voice and sound is a very key thing in a lot of your acting work. So I wanted to ask you to start what do you find interesting about creating the sound of a character? It's definitely for me one of the most, um, if I'm lost with the sound, I feel shy. And it's like about finding the place where I get comfortable with an accent or a dialect or a, a speech pattern where it can like unlock either psychology or place or something rich. It's the way some people will, would put on a like prosthetic or something, I think of it that way. It always feels like a really helpful building block. And often I'll come up with the voice first. Oh, okay. Um, not always, so in rehearsal, you're, you're using the voice. Yeah. As opposed to like you're figuring out the material and then the voice comes it's, later. It happens different every single time, but there have been ones where the character came out of a voice and then I would write the entire 
character based on the voice and then there'll be other times where I'm hunting for the voice until you know the end of things you know yeah you know how people sometimes say like they put on the corset and suddenly they're yeah the totally <laughs> so <laughs> totally. Is, it, is that like you put on this voice yeah I think it is and I think with Teddy like that was a cool one because I knew I was going to be playing this character I was obsessed with Teddy Roosevelt particularly like as a young as a young man as a child and like the way that that person grew up and this like there, there's, there are these three, um, bio, these biographies that are broken up into three pieces about him that are so compelling, so beautifully written. And um, Rachel Chavkin was like, we should make a show where you play him. And I all had this idea that I was going to use a voice changer. Uh-huh. And we tried that and I sounded like a, like, I just, it just sounded hilarious, but it was not right. And finally I decided to use, um, descriptions of his voice like I would take that somebody said that he sounded like a grandmother or somebody said that he sounded like um people you know that a dude uh, somebody his high high patrician yeah. New York accent people would talk about how big his teeth were the way his te- teeth gnashed when he would speak a piping tenor and I just decided I was like what if I just did a like I basically ended up landing on Catherine Hepburn who is like, you know, a, a patrician East Coast yeah. um, lady with big teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and I could live in my own register. Yeah. And it was just so much more successful than trying to mask it, truly mask it with, with a mic or with tech effects. Right. And then as soon as that was happening, it was like just the joy was so apparent for me and for everybody in the room. It's like it just kind of like you feel the magic go and you go like that's the that's the one. Like, I can improvise inside of this person. Can you recall some of that voice? Oh, yeah. Let's see. Um, well, he would uh, was very enthusiastic uh, and quick. And uh, uh, let's see. What would he be talking about? Um, um, <laughs> oh, he would write to his mother and his sister all the time in these really hilarious patronizing. Um, so it would be like, dearest pussy. <laughs> Which is what he called his sister. Um, Harvard is so lonely here. I can't wait for you to come visit and sit in my armchair. It's just big enough for me and pussy. <laughs> so, in uh, in reviewing the play, Helen Shaw from Time Out said that you sound nine parts Catherine Hepburn and one part Bull Moose. <laughs> yeah. Fulmos is Teddy Roosevelt. It's one of his uh, his personae from when he was running for president, the the unsuccessful time. And this kind of like Brahmin, like patrician, like you were saying, yeah. this kind of like high society. Well, and I think what was fun about it was that it's the so the opposite. The image I think people have about him is this warmonger and this, you know, he's a very loaded figure, a huge proponent of like hyper masculine, like toxic masculinity of, you know, would put his own children in the front lines during World War One was a, in the army himself, just was a huge outdoorsman. The stories about him are so hyper-masculine. And I was so drawn to his, like, this very, like, uh, genteel, mm. the way he was babied as, a, as a, one of the wealthiest families in New York City. It felt so at odds with that. Really, the quest was about, like, me finding, as a, as a pretty diminutive, diminutive woman, like, could I find that side of myself? Yeah. So I brought him to me a little bit so that yeah. I could get to him. Yeah. Well, on a similar note, you were in another play called Men on Boats where you also play a guy. Yeah. And in fact, the whole cast of women 
are all dudes mm -hmm. who are all voyagers and outdoorsmen and uh, like frontiers kind of men. And it's a hilarious show. And I was trying to think back what made it so funny. Is it just like women in drag? Like that can't only have been it because I think we're at a place now where like that's also something people do in, as an identity thing. And it's a, yeah. it, that couldn't be like the humor alone. But something about it, all the women, including yourself, to really comic effect took this very male stance, like the way you stand and hold your hips yeah. differently. Yeah. And maybe it was like finding that macho-ness that sometimes feels put on. Yeah. Can you like locate what was so humorous about that show? I mean, yeah. the, it really was a hilarious experience for the audience, I think. I mean, you're right. Like the, we, we did originally have two trans actors in the cast downtown and, and those people stepped away from the piece when it moved to playwrights. And I think it was because very much for those reasons that it felt like the questions that they would be asking in those roles would be very different than the questions that women who were dressing in drag were asking. Mm. I just straight up think it's brilliant writing. Ja Jacqueline Bacchus is, I did several readings of it with different constellations of women reading all these different parts. And every time it was like, the humor was nonstop. It was just so, she, she just wrote it so, the style is so funny. She's got a show at Playwrights right now called Wives yeah. that is similarly just like insanely funny. So um, you're in Men on Boats, your director, Will Davis. What was the kind of direction given about how to speak and how to hold your body and how to stand? There wasn't a lot, actually. It was kind of everybody found, you know what, I'm, I can't, who knows? Like, I might be remembering this wrong, but in my head, I don't remember there being a lot of discussion. It was kind of every man for himself, <laughs> so, like, to to like, so to speak, to like find the, the way you were going to look at it. When you're playing a guy, how do you stand? How do you walk? Yeah. It was an interesting also culmination of like three or four years of my life where I had started with Teddy from a place of thinking, I can't play men. Like I can't embody this. My body is so different from this and I don't, I don't have this. To re like using that voice to help bring that masculinity closer to myself. And then over the course of building that, finding this masculinity. Once I got to Men on Boats, there was already kind of like... I'd already had a bit of a process with it and it was about like differentiating for me so that I could keep having a good time playing men. Like it was like, yeah. what is going to be different about done? It's no longer just about playing a man. It's like the specificity of this person. And I found, um, my favorite was, I basically found him with finding a gesture from um, that great documentary about Metallica going to therapy. Have you ever seen it? I think it's called <laughs> no. Some Kind of Monster. Okay. And there's this, they get a new bassist at one point and it's this like amazing man who's just this long hair like down to his ass. And I call it the like bassist hair toss, <laughs> which you can't see um, on uh, the audio track, but it's like a stiff neck hair toss. <laughs> 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 and that became Dunn. So it was just like about finding, because Dunn didn't ha really have a voice, um, too many voice ticks besides kind of just keeping it like low and monotone. And Yeah. I have this memory that you kept, that your character kept talking about wanting to portage. Oh yeah, portage. Is that something? Yeah. Portaging is um, when you pack up your boats and carry them on land uh -huh. because you can't get across certain parts of Rough River. Yeah. Um, so it's like really hard. It's just, I've never done it. I've never done portage, but it's the kind of thing that to me sounds like just like, oh God, like 
the shit explorers do, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah. And you would be like bragging about your ability to Yeah, lift it. there was some of that. There was also there was a lot of like wanting to name things after yourself. That was For my sure. character's main drive, <laughs> I think. So what did he sound like? Uh yeah, he I think he was just kind of like he he just kept it there was like the keeping it low, keeping it mm-hmm. um not moving around too much. Right. What has been the most challenging kind of stylistic uh, change you've needed to make mm. in playing a character? There's certainly, with Band's Visit, I encountered for the first time an accent that I really struggled with. Um, the Israeli accent really stymied me for a long time, which was was really exciting for me, actually, because I think of, I've always thought of myself as being great at accents, you know what I mean? It's like something I always like took pride in, like I can do all the... It was a sound I had not really spent much time around, almost at all. And so apparently if you haven't heard certain sounds in certain languages by the time you're six or 10 or something, you actually mm-hmm. struggle to be able to even differentiate them from other sounds. Mm-hmm. And I think there were a couple things with the Israeli accent that like it took me until we were about to go to Broadway when I finally heard Itai Benson, who's one of our um, Hebrew-speaking mm-hmm. cast members who had spent and a lot of time is Israeli, in Israel. Right? Is, yeah, is Israeli-American and grew up going back and forth a lot. Um, I just heard him talking to somebody in the hallway. I'd spent all summer like watching Israeli TV. Like I was like <laughs> trying to... Which is that, honestly the best series. It's great. <laughs> and, um, the, and I sounded French. I just consistently sounded French. Uh-huh. And finally I was like... <gasps> Oh God, I just heard it. I just heard it. It's like, it is different. I, like it's tucked back in the back of the throat in this different way. And yet it's still, it still is like, I don't know that I would be able to, like if I tried to bring her up again, <laughs> it's like, it just goes back into French yeah. <laughs> because you just, you, the practice is so necessary to just be near the sounds. Mm-hmm. Whereas there are other, you know, I could pull a Scottish accent out, you know, because uh-huh. it's just so familiar and I've spent time there and I, right. Know, so that was a big one. And you have some lines in Hebrew. I do. I, oh gosh, I loved it. I loved it. And I got to like study Hebrew for a little while. And of course, let that fall by the wayside, sadly. But um, studying the language is such a cool thing to do when you're learning an accent, mm-hmm. because then you start learning where the, more than just the accent, like why the word choices or like mm-hmm. why people structure. Like we would make a joke that um, Sharon Saig, who's um, mom, <laughs> She, she's Israeli American as well, but her mom, she, she always talks about how her mom will, will scatter um, pluralizing S's in random places in the, in the sentence. So like, I went to Trader's Joe or like, <laughs> thanks God. And this like very specific, you know, and that, yeah. it, and that it's that's something that happens a lot in, in that accent. And you're just like, as you learn the language more, you can come to understand why those things occur. You know, it's, it's great. That's funny. Like, like passersby. Uh-huh. Like actual sure. correct English. Or thanks God, like thanks be to God. <laughs> yeah. But like where does it, yeah, like I don't know where it comes from in the the structure of Hebrew that it would come out right. that way. It's just, so yeah, like when an accent is difficult, that's one. Or when you feel like there's a lot of pressure, sometimes like doing an accent for television, that came up recently where like, thankfully it was an accent that was a little closer to me, but you just don't get tended to in the same way unless you're, I think, a series mm. regular. You don't, there's not like the onboarding process where everybody's in the room together and we make decisions about what the accents are going to be. And mm-hmm. um, so I got to first day of set for one and just had to speak to the series regular actress who was doing all my scenes with 
and be like, so what are you doing for this? Like, huh. what are the sounds? And she passed along the dialect coach's info to me and I like reached it, you know, but I did a day of shooting. So there's not a dialect coach on set. There was, but I had not been, you know, introduced to him. Mm-hmm. So that can be challenging, just like playing catch up, like trying to do it in the in a split second, like grab a couple sounds based on what the other people are doing and try yeah. to imp- improvise as best you can. Is that town New York, New Jersey? That town is, uh, yeah, Wequaic. It's Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but first I want to ask you, something I read about you online was that you had a sort of fascination with accents from when you were younger and that I think I said, read something about how, that your mom tutored. Yeah, where did I say that? Um, Interesting. I guess some interview I came across. <laughs> I'm repeating myself. In my <laughs> research. Um, and so you had people in your home who came in with different languages and things like that and different accents and different ethnicities. And so were you aware during those years that acting was an interest or were you sort of just picking up these subtle bits of, of global flavors? I mean, to be real, it wasn't... My growing up, it was more like my mom did. She speaks, she spoke, uh, she speaks, she's a Spanish teacher and she also spoke Portuguese. And so she would have, there were some Brazilian guys who would come and take classes from her. Just she was offering that in the paper or something like that. It wasn't, that's what I remember mm-hmm. of that. It was actually like I would, I did some traveling with my dad, who's a, a geologist. And so, like, when I was two, I was in China for three months or something. Huh. So it wasn't actually that I had like, there were these pockets of worldliness, but like my town was a very small town. It was where was that? Lake Arrowhead, California. It was pretty segregated. There were there was a lot of Mexican Americans and uh, that lived there, but it was not that was not part of my experience. It was like a very white, um, very. Mm, it considered itself liberal, but I think it was a pretty just a pretty standard, mm-hmm. you know, suburbia in the pine trees kind of a, a place. Beautiful, but I do think that it was like. these little pockets of like moments of getting to hear different, spending that time at two years old, I think in a different culture for that long, I think does your ear changes. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I would remember mimicking, like mimicking the sound of the um, Brazilian Portuguese speaker. Hmm. I just loved that, like that ow sound. So actually I think um, as far as wanting to be a performer, that was always like, I always, we, you know, it was like the same story of like just listening to the old movie musicals and, being able to carry a tune from a young age and mm. people in your family telling you that you were a good singer and you're mm. just like, oh, I get praise for this. You know what <laughs> I mean? It was like a similar kind of just like, I just found it so exciting to sing and dance and do all those things. But I think, I think the interest in, the interest in accents is, I don't know. I don't know where else I could put it besides those like that travel mm-hmm. because it is really profound for me. It's like something I've always really, really loved. Yeah. Um, like, I think if I, in a different life, I'd be a linguist. Like, I find it also, uh-huh. you know, and would know many more languages than I do. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I think the ability to portray someone of a different ethnicity than your own is, it's both the indication of great versatility for an actor, and it's also more and more this kind of delicate area now. Very, yeah. Um, where there's a greater emphasis on people, especially uh, actors or artists of color portraying the ethnicities that are their own yes. and, and wanting to have that kind of tell your own story be in place in terms of casting. Absolutely. So it, it's tough to navigate because th- there is a, 
a, a valid argument to say like, well, acting is embodying this different yeah. kind of persona. Um, but maybe the idea more and more is that until we have like actual equity, yes, the difference that you take on maybe is more the the mental state or the type of character or the type of background. Yes, or, um, it's very it's weighted and it's it's yeah. challenging. I mean, and I think that's partly why the Israeli accent was not something I ever thought to learn because I do have Jewish um, ancestry, ethnically, but not but not culturally. I wasn't raised Jewish, and I. Um, that that was a point of contention for people in the cast who were Israeli, mm -hmm. people who um, came from Middle Eastern backgrounds. I think there was a lot of, you know, once you, you can boil it down as far as you can, like there's, there's Lebanese people playing uh, Egyptian people. There's so many different ways to break that down. And mm -hmm. I think mostly I just go like, you tell me, like you tell me what you can receive from me. And there's never a moment where I'm gonna try to insert myself into a space that I don't feel it. I think in Band's Visit, the thing that made it feel blurry and, po and therefore possible that an actress with my background could play Iris was Israel is a melting pot, a lot mm -hmm. like the United States, and that there are ethnically a ton of different kinds of people there, including people with backgrounds very much like my family's background. Mm -hmm. um, and it's complex, and there's all kind of class lines and all that stuff, and you know, we got into it only really the tiniest bit you know, because it's not really a play about right. digging into that stuff. Right. But it's very, yeah, it's something I, I feel very aware of. And maybe, you know, if that play gets redone in 10 years, there absolutely won't be, you know, shixes in the, <laughs> <laughs> in the cast. I don't know. There, and, and I've certainly, I run into this the most in audiobooks because you're, if you're one, you're one narrator and then all of a sudden, right. you know, in a book I did recently, there's, six um, Australian characters and the main narrator is a Canadian kid. Um, and then all of a sudden he's in Seoul, Korea, and he there are six Korean like K-pop stars uh -huh. that are speaking to him in Korean accents. And, and you're the one narrator for the I'm the one narrator life. for the entire book. And so my brain just went, as I was waiting for the director to answer me being like, what are we doing for this? Yeah. I reached out to, you know, to Korean actors, uh, to Korean American actors, and was like, look, I don't know what they're gonna have me do here, but like, if I have to do this, there has to be, I have to do this with perfection and it has to be discreet. Mm -hmm. Like, can you, and I paid them to read my lines. Um, and then thank God the director got back to me and was like, no, we're gonna both keep working. Like, why don't you not do any accent? <laughs> like, you're not gonna yeah. do any accent, you're gonna differentiate them um, through personality, you know? And. And it was absolutely the right choice. Is it just not the right? That's not. It's not appropriate. It's appropriate for me to do an Australian accent in a way. It's not appropriate for me to try. Yeah. Korean, and I would love the day when equity is, <laughs> when things are so balanced that people can put on each other's voices, because I think it is actually a really beautiful way to learn to hear people better, mm -hmm. and to listen to culture better, and to like, to find people and to hear them. But yeah, it's not. It's not the moment right now. I don't think. I think I always will err on the side of hoping that a person who is, who is ethnically appropriate is going to play the role. I think there's never a moment where I would, where I would wish to get the chance to, you know, I think, I think that conversation is so complicated and, and, and so fascinating. And yeah, I'm happy to sit on the sidelines and like listen to some brilliant people talk about their very different opinions about what that, you know, that conversation is. But um, yeah, I'm mostly, I'm mostly in the camp that like, 
finding people who are as close as you can to the role is a really great thing to do since it has historically been such a mm-hmm. shit show. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're still, they're still doing it in opera. I mean, you're still, you're still painting uh-huh. faces in opera, you know, that there was a huge article in the times about like, this Othello is a white guy who's not going to wear blackface. <laughs> You're like, or you could cast a, di- like, just, we just don't get to see this opera. How about we just don't get to see this opera if you can't find an African-American artist or, who yeah. can, or, an, you know, a, a black artist who can sing this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I feel like the real, the real, really the only place where I'm contending with it in any way is audiobooks. I think with the kind of um, like elasticity that I think you bring to a lot of your work, it's, it seems interestingly linked to what you've done with the team, which is a theater collective that you co-founded, I think. Mm-hmm. And along with uh, Rachel Trafkin, who directed Town and won the Tony for that, among other artists. And what's interesting about that is um, you, you're, the, the group writes and performs. And all of the work, I've seen several of them by now, all kind of like imagine... America today and American history through this kind of elastic, uh, in this kind of elastic way, which is why I think of that word, like sort of a stretching American history where like in the case of Rosa Velvis, you have people who would never have met in, in America, but here they are and sharing the space. What is the process of that? And, and why is the team drawn to, looking at America in this kind of bending, stretching way? I think it evolved based on who we were. It was Rachel's idea to f- start the company. We, she wanted to, remember we were just out of NYU and she was like, let's, let's go to Edinburgh and with, let's write a play and go to Edinburgh. And we called it the team because she had a t-shirt. I think it was like she had a t-shirt that said like, Team Chavkin from like some run she always used to do with her family on Thanksgiving or something. I don't remember what it was, but we were like, we should call it the team. And then for tax purposes, we had to make it into an acronym because like the team was already taken. So we made <laughs> yeah. it into the, this, the like most pretentious acronym on the face of the planet, which we all now despise and try to distance ourselves from, but called Theater of the Emerging American Moment. Um, <laughs> But I think that naming it's like it the voice that, of my generation. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, I think it came from naming ourselves that on some level we were mm. sort of tied to this exploration. And it was a way that I think Rachel gradually, as she was like dealing with writing grant language, you know, like came to like <laughs> describe what we did. It was like somewhere along the way we talked about like, we're always digging around in the, in the American experience, which I think most companies are doing on some level is digging mm-hmm. around in their own experience as Americans. Right. Um, but most companies don't have the amount of time travel that is present <laughs> sure. in one of your shows. That's true. I think that, I think that some of the fascination with America and America's processes and politics comes from Rachel being the child of two DC lawyers, civil rights lawyer and a, and a health, public health advocate and, so for her, I think it was always like a very personal drive to examine that stuff. And then the artists, I think, the, the actors and, the, and writers in the company, for us, it was like this awesome opportunity just to be like, what am I interested in? It would always be, what am I interested in? And if there's six of us in the room, it's always going to be these things that don't quite cohere. Mm-hmm. We're, you know, we're such different people. So because you have 
experience in writing and you you have different acting roles where you do different kinds of um, like access points to different voices and accents and things like that. When you are looking to audition for new roles, what do you go out for? It seems like you, like the field would be so open potentially, <laughs> yeah. especially with getting into TV more and more. It's interesting. It's like, it always feels like it's like whatever the last thing that I did, I'll get a lot of auditions or something that feels like that. Like uh-huh. after Ben's visit, it was a lot of like really struggling housewives. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like um, after, after Rosa Velvis, it was men. I mean, just, I was like all huh. these, all these asks to, which is not something I was ever going to be, was being asked before. Sometimes it'll be stuff that is just straight up like some TV gig and the casting director is not hugely, they just, you know, saw me in Bands Visit or something like that. Mm -hmm. And and then other times it'll be people who, directors who specifically ask for me because they saw me in a thing doing something weird and they're looking for, I often will get called in for things where they're looking for people to be devising, participating in different ways, building building stuff in a different way if it's not a you know sometimes plays that are be that are in development Mm -hmm. but it's across the spectrum you know I mean also like my background is in Shakespeare too you know so like I I I do way less Shakespeare than I actually I'm a Shakespeare dork Mm -hmm. which is I think would surprise people on some level because it's not what I really tend to do Uh um but yeah I go out for all the all the day. I mean, it's just yeah. really, really different always. And then like in House of Cards recently, you had a really formative role in the final season and that was as feminine and as white and as yeah. <laughs> like seemingly like what you come in as, yeah. as, as yourself. Sure. And I think sometimes it can be interesting because I think I, there's this thing that people do sometimes where they're not sure what they want but they know they want something like that's gonna blow, knock it out of the park. You know, they want something like interesting and out there. I'll get called in with like, people will do this sweeping stuff where they'll be like, African-American actresses or trans people or weirdo downtown people. <laughs> and I'm just like, that's not okay. <laughs> like those are different, those are different things. Like basically what you're looking for is I don't know what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Like show me all of your, show me, yeah. you know, bring me your tired, your poor, your <laughs> not old masses. Your, yeah. It's like, I'll go in with people that are so different from me and bring such a different energy. And in those groups, like when mm-hmm. I'm going up, you know, with some of these like downtown performance art stalwarts, like you, they, you are not going to get the, mm-hmm. the level of weird that you get from me and Rosa Velvas because I built that piece. Uh-huh. Like I'm going to come in looking like, like a nice brown haired lady. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. like, and it's a question of whether I connect to the material then on some deep level, whether I can bring the, yeah. the lunatic that they need or not, you know, right. and sometimes I can and sometimes I can't. I feel like on House of Cards, you brought the earnest mm-hmm. because on that show, everyone is so conniving yes. and in the later like life of the show when it was sort of had to like really find itself again narratively and now Robin, Robin Wright is the focal character i think it i imagine i think i've read and it, and it seems like it has the the, the showrunners and the, and the writers had to really like figure out what's now the narrative yeah now that the main character is gone mm-hmm. and it seems like what it the way it found itself is that women can be as ruthless as men. There's no reason why. It's just that it tends to be men. Yeah. And 
the only reason why you you realize you're dealing with utter corruption because sometimes you can just like indulge so indulge like in that like delicious grotesque fantasy yeah is when you see somebody who has a moral center and that was your character mm-hmm. I've seen you in a number of things and that was like I've never seen like your eyebrows purse themselves like, in quite that way like so frequently just like looks so like disheartened and like earnest it was so. a really funny one because I, I I had this thought because that character was just supposed to be a, a one-off the previous season and I think that they you know they keep everything so close mm. the writers that I didn't have any idea like how I was going to be used. Like I didn't know if I was going to be the person who finally brings somebody down or if hmm. I'm going to be the person who's like another pawn that gets, you know what I mean? You just don't know. Right. And um, I was about to shoot a week before this stuff happened with Kevin and um, it all went back to the drawing board and I really didn't know if I was going to be written out of the show. I didn't know, I didn't know what I was going to be doing. So I didn't know if I would be doing anything. But I came to set when they'd finally rewritten and they brought it, you know, six months later, they were, they were ready to shoot again and had, you know, rewritten the whole thing. I came on thinking like no one who works at the White House is a pushover. Like every one hmm. of these people is so high achieving. It's like not even these, everybody here went to like, you know, this is the, have career plans, you know, in a way that, and so I came on kind of being like, all right, professional lady. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And the first note, I mean, from the first moment, it was like, be more thrown, be mm. more, you know, and it was kind of wonderful to get to, to get to, I wasn't expecting to be asked to do that because I, you know, it felt like such a ruthless landscape. And it was, they, you know, the writer ended up saying like, she's the only person with a heart on the, you know, which I think yeah. is a stretch because there were a few others, but like, it was interesting. It was really interesting and interesting to work opposite Robin, who, you know, has such the the power is real, like the ruthlessness and all the other mm-hmm. stuff. Like there's some, but the power is real, and it it was um, like her aura on set. Her aura. She's just a very powerful woman. She's just mm-hmm. a person who knows exactly what she wants. Executive producer on the show, and is, yeah, you know, and, and directed like, episodes. Deep, yeah, she directed one of mine. She's just deeply like, one of the most competent human beings. Yeah, you know, and there was just and something she has about that haircut. Mm-hmm. And it kind of brings it out. It brought it out in me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like my like. My little beta self was just like, all right, <laughs> you know, but it was nice to get to, to be a part of the landscape in that way while not, uh, being a manipulator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd love to sort of finish up by asking about your current TV role, which is The Plot Against America, yeah. um, which is based on the Philip Roth novel and is being adapted by David Simon for HBO. Um, I'm really excited about it. And I know that you've read a number of Philip Roth books and that this one sort of resonates more with you. Can you speak to why? Yeah, I, I actually, well, I'd only read, I've only read two. I've read, oh, okay. I read Portnoy's Complaint when I was, it was handed to me as a prop book when I was doing Pride and Prejudice at a regional theater when I was <laughs> in my early 20s. And I was reading this book like in my little wig and corset, you know, just like being shocked out of my mind. And I think, and I think at a moment in my own development, like as a woman, that was, it was a vulnerable place to be reading such an intensely, gosh, I don't even know what the word would be. There's a lot of feminist uh, dialogue about that book. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Such a brutal depiction of his mother's body and uh, femininity and 
just w women and mothers in general, there's a, it, there's a brutality to it that, is, that was terrifying to me. And I, I hated it when I read it. And I think now when I picked up Plot Against America, I was like gearing up, you know, I was like prepping myself for this sort mm -hmm. of style of this voice, this sort of dated white male voice. Had you already been cast? Yes. Uh -huh. And I just, I loved the book and I felt like it was so exciting to see a writer grow or just a human being grow because his stuff is so intimate to himself. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it, and I think I, it really opened my mind to him and my eyes to him and how there's a great quote. I think it's Rachel Cusk, some, uh, something I read recently where she so casually offhand just says, well, adult bodies are hideous to children. Like they're, they're uh -huh. disgusting to children. And it's like, of course they are like that. There, that there's something about him describing his mother that way. There's, there's a brutal honesty about it for him and to be able to just like I think he's come to the other side of some of his uh, yeah. stuff that he was working through when he was a younger man. Yeah, um, I think it's uh, by far his best book. And one thing I'm really interested in is how it's going to be reworked for television, in particular because David Simon, just knowing all of his HBO work, usually is drawn to various systems of government being intertwined at certain points in history and mm -hmm. in certain American cities. Yeah. And in this, while it does have a strong linkage to history, it is based on fiction. And it's really like this very internal world of the family yeah. feeling the ripple effects of, of national policy. Yeah. So how closely, can you speak to how closely it, it is linked to the novel? I don't know if I can. I, in my experience, like truly just of my, the times that I spent on set, it felt the story was the story. But yeah, I probably can't say much more than that. It didn't, it <laughs> okay. didn't, I didn't feel that there were wild departures happening, but I'm sure that, I'm sure that they've changed things here and there mm -hmm. for, for ease of telling, but right. uh, it did feel, it felt like my experience of reading it, I guess is what yeah. I can say. So was that the, the, the New York, the Newark accent that you Yeah, it was, it was on? cool. It was that I, I hadn't known that the, um, I hadn't known the differences between Jersey and Brooklyn and Long Island that like on a Brooklyn accent, I guess, you know, you're more likely to say mother, like you're dropping the, you're dropping the <laughs> R at the end. And that in Jersey, it's, you're pronouncing the R more, which was, so, I, 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 don't, I don't even know if like people care, but that, for me, that was like such a little dork out of like, yeah, we're going to the, to the doctor together. You're mm -hmm. just pronouncing that as if we're going to the doctor together. Uh huh. Like the Boston and the New York are more like dropping the R, and the Jersey hits it, I guess, more. And I don't know if that's um, specific to the time period or if that's mm. like a, you know, I'm sure you it's also all blurry do, now. You do Jersey for Orange is the New Black. I do. I do. Um, I believe it's Staten Island for Orange is uh, the New, New Black. Okay. But what I did for that was just straight up mimic, um, yeah. Yellowstone uh, uh, accent that she oh. had already built because uh -huh. it was she she did sort of an amalgam of things I think when she first did it which is one of my favorite stories about accents because I think that when she when she'll talk about it it's like she makes jokes about how she just like pulled it out of like old movies and whatever and just mm -hmm. like and yet it it when you first hear her on in the first episode yeah it's it feels like they found somebody from the some tiny town and you know, it's on the edge of Staten Island somewhere, you know, it's like, yeah. there's something that feels so legitimate about her, unless you're from that area and you're like, that is not what that sounds like. 
And that's what I love about it. It's like you really can't, there, there's a legitimacy to her sound that, that, um, that may not actually necessarily even be legitimate, but it feels legitimate. And I think that there's, there's room for that in a lot of stuff, which is really cool. Yeah. That you can get really specific. And I like to get as specific as I can, but that it is like at the end of the day, it's about a lot more than just like the vowel sounds. It's also about your, all the other stuff that you're doing. Yeah. Like so, Cherry Jones, when she does her Southern accents, it's like, I remember seeing her, um, uh, Wingfield, Cherry Wingfield. Or, uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, or not Cherry Wingfield, uh, Amanda. Sorry, Amanda Wingfield, where she, you know, she's so incredible with those accents from her, from where she grew up, I think. Mm -hmm. And, she, but it's not just the accent. It's like, she also sounds like she has a perpetual cold as that character. <laughs> like she would, she'd be doing like Laura. Yeah. Look at the mood, you know? And it's like, God, it's, yes, it's a human being. You know what I mean? It's such a human being. She yeah. does, she does more than just the, the phonetics. Yeah. But yeah, I think, I think for me, I'm, I'm just tactilely motivated. So like we were, there's literally, there's scenes where I'm folding laundry and the difference between like everything that you own is mended. Mm. Um, it was a time when people aren't throwing things away. You're mending things. Like everything has a history and everything is like, the pants that you've taken out six times for your kid mm -hmm. because you can't afford more. So he better stay, not grow too much more, you know? And there's just, there's just, that can just be so, um, so helpful in the moment to have stuff. And you can end on TV. You can also like so often just holler for what you want. Like if there's mm -hmm. something that you're like, I oh, God, I had this idea. Could I have, you know, my husband's sweater here or something. And there's 30 people who will do their best to try to make that happen for you. Brilliant people who know the period and know the, um, and there's a joy to just inventing it in your mind too, but I, I just love the, yeah, the tangible yeah. objects. Well, I'm really excited about that and I can't wait to hear how you bring your voice to it. Thank you. <laughs> thanks so um, much. And thanks for speaking with me. Of um, course. I really love your work. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Places Everyone on Twitter. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time.